Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, former special counsel Robert Mueller, what's going on and why did Congressman Gohmert come out and write a book concerning special counsel Mueller unmatched? Why is that happening? What is the purpose of the congressman and why is it so important that the American people know. We tackle that question tonight on AJC Radio. Folks, hang on. We take off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Kendrick Barnes, Sapson Riddle, William Williams, Dennis Merritt, Cliff Stewart, and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we tackle a very important question and topic regarding Robert Mueller. As you may know him as former special counsel uh, in the investigation regarding Russia and the interference of the uh, uh, 2016 elections. We deal with this issue tonight. Congressman Gohmert has come to some conclusions, folks, that let me be very clear. This is his position on his time on Capitol Hill and his interactions with Robert Mueller. We chime in on that as we begin to research and read the article, 48 pages long, unmasked, Robert Mueller unmasked, is for one reason. We see a lot of similarities in the case of the RP5. We're going to show that relation tonight. And what is it about Mr. Mueller that raises so many questions? The foundation of this story comes from Congressman Gohmert from Texas. We're going to deal with that tonight. And a very special welcome uh, to all of our listeners out there tonight as we get into this discussion, which is critically important because we will look at a pattern of behavior by Mr. Mueller. William, your thoughts on this? Why is it critically important? Why do we need to discuss it? Why is the Congressman a Republican uh, who has made these claims against Another Republican. We can't necessarily say or form a conclusion that it's politically motivated uh, because they are both from the Republican Party. This raises a lot of questions, but an interesting discussion tonight. It it is, and what people need to understand is that once – you know, these people operate, and they have this underlying motive. What's going on? What is is the motive behind their agenda? This person was in charge of this – you know what is a thirty-five million dollar investigation? What was what was going on behind that? What you know as far as uh, his recent involvement in the government spotlight? But here with the deal with the excuse me, the director of the FBI, his actions. What was he doing there? What you know? And and Gomer had has several examples there, basically talking about his conduct. He basically he did not want to take. I hear from any of his subordinates. He wanted everything to be in lockstep with what he wanted, uh, guiding the FBI in certain directions, using them, almost weaponizing the FBI. Uh, and we have we talked about several cases, in cases Ted Stevens, uh, the uh, the uh, senator from Alaska, I believe, uh, how it was conducted. The investigation was conducted, and later on, it was dismissed. 
and how that impacted his reelection. And of course, he was not reelected. And he ended up passing away. But these things there are things that were called in question, and we should things that we should look at. Why was the was the FBI directed to do these things, these acts? And there was there was some kind of motive behind the scenes, and there was never any kind of you know any kind of outcome where you saw any kind of criminal behavior or anything like that. You just all of a sudden the FBI acted, moved, uh, and gave uh, an air of suspicion behind the behind the, the person that was in question, and then all of a sudden it went away. And this and and so what he shows here is that this is his behavior. This is his direction as the FBI director. The things that he did. And so he was saying, hey, listen, these are events that took place under his watch, at his hand, at his direction. And we need to be aware of that. Well, absolutely. Samson. Uh, yeah, just going over a lot of the stuff that was covered in um, in Gomert's 48-page article. I mean, you see a pattern of behavior that's going on with this guy. And then in another article I've, I've read here, I mean, we're talking about a man that – perverts and twists and even just outright breaks the law to achieve what he's trying to do. Now, I was reading a part of the, the what he calls the national security letters that are basically just blanket documents that give them access to all kinds of things. And that, between that and the Patriot Act during his tenure, like they, they would raid businesses, much like they did to the IRP-5. They would go in and they would conduct searches on congresspeople and senators in their homes. And, and he was never checked on this. I mean, this is not just an isolated incident. This man throughout his career has done this from the 80s with Whitey Bulger to, you know, the 90s, the 2000s. He's been connected with having pre-knowledge of the 9-11 attacks. I mean, this guy has a marred track record. And it's just time that the, the American public, our listeners, all these people, they know about who this guy really is and the tragic things that he's done. To, to citizens of our country. Well, it has to be dealt with, ladies and gentlemen, because when you have the, the most powerful agency in law enforcement, uh, which is the FBI, uh, there are things you have to be accountable for. Um, again, this foundation has been laid not by a just cause, by Congressman Louis Gomer from Texas. He's laid this foundation... It is our job as advocates to look into the matter, and when we see similarities, again, a pattern over the years of conduct that raises high questions, most definitely in the RP5 case. We're going to deal with that tonight. Why is it such a why is it the issues so similar, speaking to the conduct or the abuse of power that Congressman Louis Gohmert speaks to? Why is it so eerily familiar as the IRP has suffered, uh, the IRP-5 has suffered the injustice that they did? We're going to deal with that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Also, before we go to break and come back for our first segment of this show, we're going to be having a show. The young man, Devon Bailey, was shot down and killed in Colorado Springs last Saturday, I believe it was. Uh, 19 years old, shot in the back uh, five times directly in the back as he ran away from officers. Also, a shot in the elbow and a shot in the back of his leg, all on the back part of his body as he was walking and running away. 
from officers. Uh, I've had an opportunity to sit down with this family today. We're going to do a show two weeks from tonight uh, as we deal with the cover-up, the corruption, the hidden agenda, if you will, of the Colorado Springs Police Department to cover this killing because that's what it is. The video has gone viral on Facebook. Uh, This man was actually walking away with his hands up in the air. He was, how do you get shot five times in the back? Why, if you thought there was an issue, a taser was not used? Because it is becoming awfully convenient to shoot down African-American folks in the streets of America. So stay tuned for that. We are going to deal with that story as we deal with all stories of injustice. Uh, stay tuned for that. Two weeks from the night, that show will air here. Uh, it is our hope and belief we will have some of the family members of Devon Bailey. Uh, he was soon to be a father, uh, was not betrayed, I believe, fairly by the Colorado Springs Police Department about his supposedly criminal record, uh, his supposedly gang affiliation. Uh, it doesn't give him an execution pass. doesn't matter whether he was in a gang whether he was affiliated, on the night in question, this man was doing nothing that justified five shots in the back, a total of seven shots that took his life, a 19-year-old boy. Unacceptable. We will address that issue two weeks from tonight. This is AJC Radio on the other side of the break. Robert Mueller unmasked the story, the foundation laid a congressman, Louis Gomer from Texas. We're going to deal with that on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence on average 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-kind, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're going to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. 
This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to perform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855 855- 529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are 
far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Do you know what this means? Do you? It means you can voice your opinion without censorship or restraint. It means you can say nothing at all. It means you can debate, protest, question, contribute, whenever, wherever. Take it. Embrace it. Say it out loud. Gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, Robert Mueller unmasked the title of this show, coming from Congressman Louis Gohmert, uh, addressing some issues here, folks, that are uh, highly, um, well, what would I say, highly, very, very important, if you will, that we look at a comparison of Mr. Mueller uh, based upon the writing, the 48-page report. Uh, by Congressman Louis Gohmert is breaking down some things that really are very troubling. And if Mr. Mueller was over any investigation, uh, this type of conversation, Dennis, takes us back to discuss a pattern. Whenever there's issues of concern, whether it's a prosecutor in a court of law, no matter who he is, if there's questions about conduct, you'll find in many cases in in situations and, and things like that, you'll find people having to go back and take a look at other cases. Because if he acted this way in one case, is that pattern present in other cases that maybe uh, Mr. Mueller, as a director, uh, oversaw? Uh, we have found some very serious similarities uh, with the injustice suffered by the wrongfully convicted RP 5 tonight that is really, really important. Dennis, your thoughts on this? Yeah, and that's true. I mean, you know, if you look at the uh, RFP 6, they were falsely accused. Uh, the FBI came in and flexed their muscles. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they've been doing that forever. I mean, they did that. He, uh, the uh, Louis Gilb Gomer, the congressman, explained, that, you know, how the FBI, you know, that they, they have all this power. And under Mueller, they were able to take this power and put innocent men in prison. And, you know, uh, you don't mess, mess with lot, people's livelihoods and all because they had that power. And that's the same thing that happened to the RP 6 I mean, they were uh, the RP 5 They were, uh, you know, just treated totally wrong. The FBI abused their power. And they, I mean, they did anything they wanted. They, they accused. They, they, I mean, they pretty much uh, blackballed these guys. I, I, I mean, and this is the same pattern that you're seeing that uh, the congressman explains in his op-ed that, you know, this under uh, Mueller, the FBI was corrupt, <laughs> and they're still corrupt. No, without question. And there were questions a lot that we talked about uh, that Mr. Mueller came before Congress Kendrick uh, days uh, before 
uh, a raid that, that, that Dennis alluded to that took place on the IRP uh, uh, Solutions uh, campus uh, where the business was. Highly questionable that you go before Congress and say we have some software because he's under attack because the software that he was put in place to develop or to come up with for uh, information sharing, trying to track terrorists, protect the country from different types of attacks, how do you go before Congress and say in a, in very shortly you're going to have some software with no name? And two days later, you're raiding the business of the IRP Solutions Company. Talk a little bit about that before we get into uh, Congressman Gomez's comments. Yes, and that, that hearing was in uh, February 2005, and we were raided uh, soon after he makes that statement. Now, key takeaways you have to take away from that testimony is one, IRP Solutions, the company, was at the time was not in any sort of business negotiation or sell software with the FBI. We were with Department of Homeland Security. Now, Mueller makes the statement that, that the, the effort was conducted jointly. This is a quote directly from Mueller. The effort was conducted jointly with the Department of Homeland Security to ensure our case management efforts would be interoperable. Now, we weren't dealing with uh, the FBI at the time, but he said, stated earlier that examining the current technologies and vendors as well as available commercial off-the-shelf software or has, as the acronym goes COTS, C-O-T-S, software applications and those designed for other agencies. Now, the takeaway from that is if you search today on Police Magazine, which is a nationally uh, – it's a website and a magazine uh, distributed to most law enforcement agencies, IRP Solutions has four, three or four articles about our case investigative software. You can type in today investigative software on PC Magazine, and nothing comes up for 2019. Nothing comes up for 2018. But IRP Solutions in 2004, 2008, 2009 is listed as available commercial off-the-shelf investigative full lifecycle software. No other software is out there that does this. So we are well aware that Mueller knew that IRP Solutions existed, had software, and was – in negotiation with the Department of Homeland Security, and he used his power not to procure that software, but to get rid of competition that might hinder him from getting money from Congress to continue to build their failed projects. And Kendrick, if you remember, uh, IRP, we demoed the silk software to the FBI. And, 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 and it, uninvited. They, they uninvited. They the, just showed up like, hey, we want to see what's going on. And why did they show up? Because they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get virtual case file to some point of, uh, oh, this can work. But Mueller spends that money, basically said in front of Congress, no, I have nothing to show for the taxpayers' money that that was squandered, but I will have something shortly, uh, uh, unnamed software, commercial off the shelf, and we'll have that shortly. And another thing that you look at, is after the raid on IRP Solutions, IRP Solutions reached out to Mueller saying, yes. look, we got raided. There is no reason why. The the uh, the search warrant is a farce. It tells lies. The investigation was a lie. Everything that uh, the FBI agent John Smith put down was full of lies. A uh, citizen U.S. attorney 
his crap was full of lies. And we reached out to Mueller saying, we need you to take a look at this. What did he do? Send it back to the FBI in Denver that was the one committing the atrocities and crimes against IRP solutions and said, let them handle it. But that speaks back to his issues on, you know, creating the Office of Integrity and Compliance, Electronic Freedom Foundation, where when the OIG did the investigation, said they're, they're, uh, the FBI may have committed tens of thousands of violations of federal law regulations or executive orders between 2001 and 2008. And, and then you have to answer this question. These transcripts are publicly available for anyone to read of Mueller's testimony in 2005. Now, you mentioned to Congress that you're, go- you're looking into commercial off-the-shelf software. You raid IRP solutions, basically blackball and shut them down, but you didn't buy no commercial off-the-shelf software. Right. So did you perjure yourself to Congress to say that there was? Because you didn't go buy any. So because, where did you get it? Yeah, where'd you get it? Well, you didn't. You went back to Congress and got $480 million of taxpayer money to do the messed up version of virtual case file all over again with Sentinel. But you basically got rid of the software that could have benefited you so that you can basically squander more U.S. taxpayer dollars. So to me, there shows you right there. The guy perjured himself, I mean, in my opinion, you Apparently, you said you're getting commercial office of software, and you didn't. You know that shows to me a very dishonest and very manipulative uh, person that uh, Miller can be, and and but he's lauded as this trust trustworthy Boy Scout that you know he would never basically break the law. But I mean, to me, it kind of shows contrary. And, so, and, oh no, I was just going to add, uh, Lamont, real quick, is that when you look at after the raid of IRP Solution. Uh, and can you remember this? That they had the the Fikmas, um, you know, thing going on where they were looking for software. To, and Fikmas is a federal information uh, case management software. They had a whole thing out there saying we need something to fill this gap for federal law enforcement. We need case management software. After the raid on IRP Solutions and uh, Director Mueller at that time, after he said there was going to be some software uh, available. He gets his funding back from Congress to do the Sentinel project. All of a sudden, the whole Fikmas initiative, the whole initiative disappears. When it's open to the public, any company, the whole thing disappeared at the same time that uh, IRP Solutions gets raised. And How the is whole, that? And the whole concept of information sharing disappeared. Yeah, it just totally, totally gone. Well, on the writing by Congressman Louis Gomer and Robert Mueller unmasked, Robert Mueller has a long and sordid history of illicitly targeting innocent people that is a stain upon the legacy of the American system. He lacks the judgment and credibility to lead the prosecution of anyone. I do not make these statements lightly, uh, Congressman Gohmert says. He says he targets the innocent. We know in the, the similarity of that statement, the RP5 were innocent men who were actively working to bring a product to the United States and a product that not only safe, really secures the homeland, protects lives of the American people, and allows law enforcement agencies to track different movements of activities 
with possible terrorists and to communicate that. And my understanding of the software is they've never seen nothing like it. Well, if you've never seen nothing like it, would it be so strange to think that Mr. Mueller would go before Congress confident? Because my understanding was the RP5 went to Washington, D.C., they demoed that software, and they were blown away. Yes, and, and not only the way, it was – we went there just on the invitation of – on the industry day with the Department of Security. I mean other agencies were coming because it was getting around of this software that the DHSC. That's how the, that's how the Department of Justice saw it. They – we weren't really actively selling them. It was word of mouth. They see – they came to the demo too. And were totally impressed. Never seen nothing like it. Um these are questions, ladies and gentlemen, that have to be answered. Why was it that these men from Colorado Springs, Colorado, worked collectively together? One couldn't work without the other. It was a team effort. And without each other, software doesn't exist. But that collective effort created something that sparked the interest of the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice. ICE, every law enforcement agency you can imagine, saw something here. How is it then that these men in their lives fall under the, the definition that Mr. Mueller targeted innocent people? It didn't matter whether they were innocent or not. He did it to members. He did it to a member of Congress. Members. Multiple. Yes. And he went after these and found out in the Ted Stevens case, there was no crime. That's right. There was no crime in, in Congressman Weldon's case. And they raided his house, his daughter's house, going against everything he was advised. But as you will hear from Congressman Gomer, this was the M.O. Yeah. of Mueller. Yeah. We have to raise the question. We have to ask for the answers. Right now, let's hear a little bit, Congressman Louis Gomer, who speaks about this huge writing that is getting so much attention right now. Let's hear him. Uh, graciously joining me today is uh, the representative from Texas's first district, Congressman Louis Gomer. So great to be with you. Thank Gary. you for thank joining you. me, sir. Sure. I appreciate it. So. Uh, I, I read uh, a very interesting uh, piece that you put together here, Robert Mueller Unmasked, and um, it, it occurred to me that kind of from the get-go, you had been warning about not just about the Mueller investigation generally, but also about Robert Mueller specifically yes. from the time that he was appointed. So I wanted to, to kind of talk to you today a little bit about sort of where where was that warning coming from? Why you know why were well, you out ahead of it? And, and that is a legitimate question, since most uh, Republicans, uh, most all uh, from the beginning when he was appointed uh, special counsel, were saying, "Oh, he has a good reputation." But my experience with him goes back to my days when he was FBI director and I was um, on the Judiciary Committee. Now, the first year he testified that I was in Congress. I gave him a pass, asked him easy questions. I knew he had served honorably, supposedly in Vietnam. That's fine, honor your service. But the more I found out, and then the more 
I knew and talked about the problems he had created, the more FBI agents I heard from about the problems Mueller was creating. And for one thing, most people are not aware, but he did more damage to the ability of the FBI itself uh, than any any director, probably all directors since Hoover put together. Uh, it was that damaging. Uh, and you found out he had an, an unconquerable ego and he didn't want any questions. And normally you get questions from people that are extremely experienced and would recognize when the director is making a mistake, might offer a suggestion. Uh, he didn't want that. He wanted yes men. So he created a policy that might be good policy for most every bureaucrat, bureaucratic agency here in Washington. The policy was when you have been in any supervisory position for five years, the end of that five years, you either have to move to Washington, basically riding a cubicle up here, um, or get out. And so I know NPR did a uh, story on this for, and just covered like nine months. And in that nine months, they said like out of 350 people that came to that five-year decision point, 150 of them just got out. And when you figure most of those had 20 to 30 years or more of experience when they got out, just that nine months, we lost thousands of years of experience. And Jerry, I can't help but think with all of the incredible constitutional violations that we're now finding out about from the FBI, I'm sorry, I can't help but think if Mueller had never been FBI director or at least had never come up with that five-year up or out policy, then there would have been solid career FBI agents that were not just yes men that would have brought it to a head, would have stopped it, would have stopped him, would never have let these kind of constitutional abuses take place. But that was just one of Mueller's problems. Now, he did, oh, he had a software program they wasted millions on, and people wanted to tell him, but he wouldn't try to tell him. He wouldn't listen to anybody else. And uh, you just look at what he did to Stephen Hatfield, the doctor that uh, was... He, he didn't even deal with anthrax. We're talking and, about the sort of the, fam the famous sort of uh, post 9-11 anthrax. It day. was immediately after 9-11. Yeah. I had, had somebody point out recently, but this is consistent with Mueller. He has protected radical Islamists for his whole career uh, as, with the FBI and even the special counsel. But um 9-11, we knew who, we found out who the perpetrators were. There were no questions, no question. That was radical Islam. And immediately after that, the anthrax scare occurred, and he was looking for something to take the attention away from the concern about radical Islam. So he sets his sight on Stephen Hatfield, and he destroys his life, ruins his friendships with other people. They go to him. They basically, from what I understand, were uh, telling friends, neighbors, people that worked with him that he's killed people with anthrax, he's evil. And there was never any evidence, no evidence. 
And it was so bad that at one point Bush called him and his uh, joined at the hip friend Comey in and said, you know, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that Stephen Atfield is the anthrax killer. Are, are you sure? And he said, I'm 100% certain. But nothing describes Mueller's or encapsules uh, Mueller's personality more than what happened after it became exceedingly clear, not only that there was a reasonable doubt, but that Dr. Stephen Hadfield had nothing to do with the anthrax. Zero, absolutely nothing. When Mueller was questioned, well, of course, he doesn't show up to explain that it wasn't him. And when asked, he said he had absolutely nothing for which to apologize. So this is kind of his thing. Of course, uh, Dr. Hatfield was paid $6 million for Mueller's abuses uh, in a settlement, but he had no apologies. He had no apologies for working so hard. We don't have direct evidence that he knew that his FBI agents, when he was in charge of criminal prosecutions in Boston, that he actually knew that his FBI agents were framing uh, mob kingpin Whitey Bulger's competition. There were four guys that his FBI framed that were competitors in, in uh, organized crime with Whitey Bulger. They were protecting Bulger, and he knew they were protecting a mob kingpin. He knew that for sure. But he, he was even sending uh, mail to the, to the parole board when it was clear these guys were framed they didn't do it and demanding that the parole board not let these guys out. Now, they got $100 million, and two of them died in prison. Uh, they weren't good guys, apparently, from uh, the things they were involved in. But this tells you a lot about the man, and I've seen it over the years. He doesn't follow the normal American jurisprudence where we – if we know that a crime's been committed, then we investigate that. And when we have probable cause to believe that someone committed that crime, then we're able to get a search warrant. We're able to get a warrant for wiretapping different things. But in his way of doing things, whether it's Stephen Hatfield, whether it's Kurt Weldon that was in Congress, if he doesn't like somebody, in his mind, he classifies them as a bad person, then it's time to find something they've done and destroy their lives for it. That is the kind of destructive wake he's left behind his time in, uh, in the FBI and his special counsel. So you've talked there about, a lot about sort of his, his past history. In, in your mind, how does, it, how does it connect now to what you're seeing with special counsel you're referencing some, yeah what you in your mind is serious worse than it's worse that. than i ever imagined the things that are coming out now the abuses this stuff being set up in advance we're finding out more and more as people have looked for a day when the investigation into the trump campaign actually happened can't have a good day but now it appears that when Trump identified people that might end up in his administration, they recognized the FBI and these people that wanted to stop Trump. They recognized a couple of names. Comey, of course, was FBI director. There had been plenty written and said about how close Comey and Mueller are. 
which also is a good indication how unethical the man is. Uh, the law and the, the rules themselves uh, on special counsel um, and the laws that for a prosecutor do not allow someone who even has the appearance of impropriety or subjectiveness to act in that role. And yet he was up here lobbying to become FBI director after Comey's gone. And he's also up here immediately. And then, as we know, Comey said he leaked it, hoping that uh, we would get leaked a conversation that he says he had with the president so that he would hopefully get a special counsel. And then the special counsel ended and up being, then it being his, his guy. I think the, the Washington expose on uh, Mueller and Comey and basically at the end, in grandiose fashion that if the world were burning down, you know, they both would have the satisfaction of knowing they would be standing there together. I mean, this is not somebody that should ever have been able to be prosecuting or be investigating an obstruction of justice issue against Trump because it necessarily, absolutely necessarily involved James Comey as a witness. And that's still a problem for Mueller. Uh, he should never have taken it. And then when we find out that he was the FBI director with direct control and an interest in and following the investigation of Russia's illegal efforts to get our uranium, along with a guy named Rosenstein, and he, in that circumstance, got a guy named Weissman, uh, Republican Trump-hating Weissman, uh, who had destroyed lots of lives, much like Mueller. He found people or companies like a accounting firm he didn't like, had no problem destroying all 10,000 lives or so. No problem. No apologies, no regrets. He destroyed lives, ruined families, and... Uh, so naturally, he wanted Weissman to be with him as special counsel. But Weissman, Mueller, Comey, uh, to a lesser extent, but absolutely Rosenstein, they really stifled any information coming out about the illegal acts Russia was engaging in to try to get U.S. uranium. Now, for the sale of U.S. uranium, you have to have permission from the Commission on Financial Investments in the U.S., which is CFIUS, C-F-I-U-S. So CFIUS has to vote and approve. And, of course, Hillary Clinton was part of that. Um, they approved the sale of U.S. uranium that it was, it was obvious it was ultimately going to be in Russian hands. They approved that. If Mueller and Rosenstein and Weissman allowed the information about Russian crimes to try to get our uranium to come out before they, CFIUS took up that vote, CFIUS, even knowing that the Clinton Foundation was going to get $145 million, hypothetically, they would still not have been able to, to vote to allow that sale. So Mueller, Rosenstein, Weissman, 
possibly call me, should have been investigated for their role in the conspiracy to allow Russia to get our uranium. But it seems obvious that while they're continuing to investigate and dragging out, spending millions and millions of dollars in this uh, ridiculous special counsel quest, they're also running out the statute of limitations on any crimes they may have committed in conspiring to allow the sale of U.S. uranium to ultimately get in Russian hands. So this is a mess. But going back to its genesis, you know, first we were told, you know, Papadopoulos may have been the starter, I guess maybe Carter Page, Papadopoulos. But now we move back far enough into early 2016, it appears the genesis was when uh, Donald Trump gave some names of people that might be in his administration and people that are part of this cabal to take out the president illegally. Uh, they recognized some names and then they started trying to set those people up so that in the event, the extremely unlikely event that Donald Trump got elected, it was what uh, I guess Strzok called an insurance policy uh, just in case he got elected. And we've now, uh, they, they've not been able to point out exactly when the genesis, when it started. They've, they've said they have, but we keep finding it earlier and earlier starting. And it appears now they were trying to set up the Trump campaign from the beginning. Uh, this is a cabal set on a coup. So, Congressman, then in, in light in light of all of that, um, what sort of oversight is uh, is Congress conducting uh, in all of this when it comes to the special counsel investigation? And what do you think that President Trump uh, should do at this point? Well, I feel sorry for President Trump. I mean, he's gone nearly a year and a half with this thing hanging over his head and a real effort to get him thrown out of office or even put in jail. I mean, that's kind of tough to come in on. But uh, as far as what Congress is doing, uh, we, uh, we aren't doing enough in my mind. But on the other hand, I know Devin Nunez is, he is really working hard to get down to the bottom of what happened. He has really been conscientious. I've really been proud of Devin the way he stepped up. But, um, you know, he has run into obfuscation, lies, uh, and unfortunately, since Jeff had Sessions had recused himself, then it's really tricky for him to try to get in and force uh, Rosenstein and Mueller to do the right thing the documents and not try to hide them. So there you have it. A little bit from Congressman Louis Gohmert from Texas talking about the Mueller pattern, if you will. Uh, those are troubling statements, William, that Congressman Gohmert makes. They are very troubling, and we haven't even gotten into the meat of this yet. We're going to actually have a young lady that is narrating on this writing on the other side of this break, but really quick before the break, when you hear that, 
how troubling is that to you? I mean, that, that's really, really troubling because basically he is pulling the cover saying, listen, don't see this man in this light that you think he, he dwells in. That's not him. There's motives. There's agendas. There's a history. I mean, decades of, of just, just this unethical behavior. And that's the way he, you know, he framed it. He said, this is just unethical behavior from being uh, a prosecutor all the way to being the director and, and not listening to his support, you know, to those that are under him that giving him direction. He's saying, hey, listen, this is not what I want to be done. Basically taking people that stood against him and targeting him. Like he pointed out, uh, you know, Congressman Kurt Weldon and, and, and what he did when he stood up against him saying, hey, 9-11 could have been prevented. There's, there's evidence here that the FBI was sitting on this, turned right around. And just went after him and destroyed the man's career. And this is what he's saying. He's saying this is very serious. When you're abusing power, you've been given this this arm of the government and, and just turn it loose and weaponize it. Well, this they, is extremely serious. Well, they go into conversation here. Uh, doing this writing, uh, Mueller unmasks. He begins to talk about uh, the knowledge of 9-11 that uh, Congressman Kurt Weldon delivered some powerful, relentless allegations about the FBI having prior knowledge that 9-11 was coming. He alleged loudly that there was documentary evidence to show that 9-11 could have been prevented and thousands of lives saved if the FBI had done their job. Uh, Understand that statement is huge. When you're talking about one of the the worst catastrophes of terror to to ever hit this nation, uh, but the relentless reaction or retaliation is how I see it by Mueller as the director. He's the head of the house. Yes. And if he's the head of the house and you're saying you didn't do your job, it doesn't fall on the agents. It falls right back in Mueller's lap. Go ahead, Kendrick. And what I'm saying is here is people should take what the congressman is saying seriously, you know, because people might say, well, he's got a political action, you know, but here's the problem with that. This is, he's not stating stuff he's making up. This is documented facts that he's showing about Mueller so that any one of us or anyone out there listening can go research. So this is, if there was nothing there, he couldn't say all these things. So these, the, the, the wrongdoing should be taken into effect. And that's what this program is about is, it doesn't matter your political leanings. Let's look at the right and the wrong is of it, and what you have to look at this guy under that lens of the truth. What? Who is this man? Look at the things that he did. Look at his track record. That's how we know. It's by his track record. Well, what you know is is that if the American people believe any portion that you knew about 9-11 prior and failed to act, you're an accessory to terror. That's right. That's and to the thousands of lives that were taken. And that was, that was his point. I mean, when Kurt Weldon made that speech on the floor, he was saying, you know, this is – you knew, and then you don't take responsibility? You don't, you don't even acknowledge this? We're going to get into this. Ladies and gentlemen, feel free to dial into the show, 646-200-0628. That's 646-200-0628. You may not know it, the temperature's rising at AJC Radio as the discussion. Mueller unmasked, heats up. We'll be right back. This is AJC Radio. 
I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody. It'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America.
For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. One eight five 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 two nine four two five two. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Because I'm 16, I can't drive at night. Because I'm 16, I can't work past 10 o'clock on a school night. Because I'm 16, I can't get a cell phone contract without my parents. Because I'm 16, I can't get a flu shot without my mother's consent. At 16, I'm not old enough to watch an R-rated movie alone. Because I'm 16, I can't buy a lottery ticket. I can't vote. I can't drink. I can't smoke. I can't join the military. Because I'm 16, I can't sit on a jury, but I can be tried as an adult. I can get a lifetime criminal record. If I get arrested, my parents don't have to be notified. Because I'm 16, my mother had to sign this consent form so that I could participate in this video. But I can go to an adult prison. But I can go to Rikers Island. But I can be sent to Attica. My name is Michael Corriero. I was a judge for 28 years in the criminal courts of the state of New York. New York is one of only two states in the entire nation that it automatically tries children as young as 16 as adults. We need to change that. Last week, my father sent me to my room. Next week, a judge could sentence me to an adult prison. We need to judge children as children. It's time to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where tonight we deal with Robert Mueller Unmasked, a writing by Congressman Louis Gohmert from Texas, shining some light on some things, folks, that I'll be honest with you are very, um, very serious uh, issues of pattern, of abuse, of Things you don't expect from the director of the FBI, the largest law enforcement agency uh, in the United States, along with the Department of Justice. These are things you do not expect to see. As we've been having discussions, Kendrick, we were talking briefly on the break. We're going to get back to Robert Mueller on mass. We were talking about uh, the uh, – let me go to Samson first, Kendrick. I'll come right back to you. Samson, we were talking about some of the tactics 
used to uh, carry out the agenda of former special counsel Mueller. Explain a little bit about that. Yeah, so what I was reading here in in, uh, Congressman Gomer's um, paper here, he said that he wasn't surprised about um, when Mueller started selecting his assistants for the special counsel's office. He said they they all had reputations of being bullies, for indicting people who weren't guilty of charges, forcing people towards bankruptcy, and even going after um, the people's family members just so that they would agree and plead guilty. Now, looking back on the IRP-5 case, like that is almost verbatim of what happened to these men. Like they were railroaded, they were bullied. Luana Banks was threatened, not only threatened but imprisoned for what, what six months because she wouldn't roll and do whatever they wanted them to do. She stood her ground, and I mean, so it's like it's the exact same, you know, playbook. You know I mean, we're seeing it here over and over and over again. Here it is, Congressman Gomez. He's like, he's, he's like, he was not even surprised. He's not even surprised this guy rallied up these, as he put it, the Kafka-esque prosecutors. These guys that are just Gestapo tactics of trying to bully people just to push their agenda. And it's just, it's amazing that, like it was pointed out earlier, he's been doing this exact same thing since the 80s. And yet, he's walking around as a free man tonight. Well, so what we do, we leave the RP5 locked up, four men remaining behind bars under highly questionable tactics by this director. That's unacceptable. And the purpose of this, and, and again, we salute Congressman uh, Gohmert uh, in his efforts. He has he's nothing to gain here. Uh, he's been in Congress a long time. Uh, he's been doing this for a minute. He's a part of the Republican Party. Uh, and mother's Republican. Somebody can point out a motive by Republicans going against Republicans. I'm all ears. Doesn't happen in most cases. Uh, but when you hear Congressman Gomer speak, he speaks, in my opinion, a man just simply telling it from what he has seen. Uh, really, an eyewitness of conduct. Uh, he makes the statement that. Uh, Uh, He said, each time I prepared to question Mueller during congressional hearings, the more concerned I became about his work ethic. Then as I went back to begin compiling all that information in order to recount personal interactions with Mueller, the more clearly the big picture began to come into focus. At one point, I had to make the decision to stop adding to this or it would turn into a far too lengthy project. Listen to those words. This is what Congressman Gomert said. He said when he first started going to hearings to hear uh, and to question Mueller, he said he was kind of, you know, he didn't start out aggressive. He was like, okay, let's listen. But he began to see things and to compile things and say, look, there's something wrong here. Then you bring in the IRP-5. You go all the way back to Ted Stevens. You go back to Kurt Weldon, uh, Congressman Kurt Weldon, Ted Stevens, Senator Stevens. Uh, all of these things, even knowing the outcome with Stevens would be what it would be. Uh, and even when he was questioned about going to a member of Congress's home and how against protocol that was without alerting the congressional leadership to say, look, and, and, and we, they're going to get into that, into this unmasked. Let's just go ahead and go to the, go to the, to the clip. She's going to begin to explain a little bit about this 
writing by Congressman Gomer. Let's hear what she has to say. What does former Attorney General Eric Holder say? Sounds like much the same thing I just said. Holders, and this is a quote from Holder. I've known Bob Mueller for 20, 30 years. My guess is he's just trying to make the case as good as he possibly can. <laughs> Holder does know him. He has seen Mueller at work when Holder was obstructing justice and acting in contempt of Congress. He knows Mueller's FBI framed innocent people and had no remorse in doing so. Let's look at what we know. In his early years as FBI director, most Republican members of Congress gave Mueller a pass in oversight hearings, allowing him to avoid tough questions. After all, we were continually told Bush appointed him. I gave him easy questions the first time I questioned him in 2005 out of deference to his Vietnam service. Yet the longer I was in Congress, the more conspicuous the problems became. As I have said before of another Vietnam veteran, just because someone deserves our respect for service or our sympathy for things that happened to them in the military, that does not give them the right to harm our country later. As glaring problems came to light, I toughened up my questions in the oversight hearings. But first, let's cover a little of Mueller's history. Mueller's minions helped mobster Whitey Bulger eliminate mob competitors. The Boston Globe noted Robert Mueller's connections with the Whitey Bulger case in an article entitled One Lingering Question for FBI Director Robert Mueller. The Globe said this, and I really like the way he put those down there. If you get the PDF, you can click on that link and it will take you to the article. Okay. Mike Albano, former parole board member who was threatened by two FBI agents for considering parole for the men imprisoned for a crime they did not commit, was appalled that later that same year, Mueller was appointed FBI director because it was Mueller, first as an assistant U.S. attorney, then as the acting U.S. attorney in Boston, who wrote letters to the Parole and Pardons Board throughout the 1980s opposing clemency for the four men framed by FBI lies. Of course, Mueller was also in that position while Whitey Bulger was helping the FBI cart off his criminal competitors, even as he buried bodies in shallow graves along the Neponset. Mueller was the head of the criminal division as assistant U.S. attorney, then as acting U.S. attorney. I could not find any explanation online by Mueller as to why he insisted on keeping the defendants in prison that FBI agents in the pocket of Whitey Bulger had framed for a murder they did not commit. Make no mistake, these were not honorable people he had incarcerated. But it was part of a pattern that eventually became quite clear that Mueller was more concerned with convicting and putting people in jail he disliked, even if they were innocent of the charges, than he was with ferreting out the truth. I found no explanation as to why he did not bear any responsibility for the $100 million paid to the defendants who were framed by the FBI agents under his control. The Boston Globe said, thanks to the FBI's corruption, taxpayers got stuck with the $100 million bill for compensating the framed men, two of whom, Greco and Tamelio, died in prison. The New York Times explained the relationship this way. In the 1980s, while FBI agent Mr. McConnelly was working with Whitey Bulger, Mr. Mueller was assistant United States attorney in Boston in charge of the criminal division and for a period was the acting United States attorney there. 
presiding over Mr. McConnelly and Mr. Bolger as a top echelon informant. Officials of the Massachusetts State Police and the Boston Police Department had long wondered why their investigations of Mr. Bolger were always compromised before they could gather evidence against him, and they suspected that the FBI was protecting him. If Mr. Mueller had no knowledge that the FBI agents he used were engaged in criminal activity, then he certainly was so incredibly blind that he should never be allowed back into any type of criminal case supervision. He certainly helped continue to contribute to the damages of the framed individuals by working so hard to prevent them from being paroled out of prison, even as their charges were on their way to being completely thrown out. Notice also evidence of a pattern throughout this article, the leaking of information to disparage Mueller's targets. In the Whitey Bolger case, the leaks were to organized crime, the mob. One of the basic tenets of our democratic republic is that we never imprison people for being bad people. Anyone imprisoned has to have committed a specific crime for which they are guilty. Not in Mueller's world. He has the reverse list of Santa Claus. And if you are on his list, you get punished, even if you are framed. He never apologizes when the truth is learned, no matter how wrong or potentially criminal or malicious the prosecution was. In his book, you deserve what you get, even if you did not commit the crime for which he helped put you away. Well, there you have it. The last statement speaks volumes. How is it that you deserve whatever you get, even if you didn't commit the crime? Can somebody explain that statement to me? There's, there's no explanation for that. How, I'm trying to figure out how is that possible. You deserve what you get, even if you're innocent. But this is the director of the FBI. That has the power to lock people up, indict people at any given time. Does he have a belief system to say, regardless, whether you did it or not, you deserve what you get? That is the most outrageous statement in the criminal justice world that anybody could let come out their mouth. It just sounds like the power went to his head, in my opinion. I mean, that's... The, the, the office of FBI director is a very powerful position. You have you have the right to at any moment investigate anything and anyone. And so you get I guess it got to the point where hey I'm I'm the police you can't stop me and if I say you're guilty or you did a crime you did it and it, and my word stands it's law. That's it. I mean really that statement when he it says he has the reverse list of Santa Claus. And if, and if you are on his list, you get punished even if you are framed. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's, it's a hit list. That's really what it's saying. It is a hit list. You are going to be taken down. If you, if you come on his radar, he's going to take you down. And it's amazing to think, I mean, listening to that clip, it's talking about paying off these men $100 million. Two of them ends up dying in prison and says that the U.S., the people of the United States got stuck with that bill, you know, and I mean, this is just one case, one example 
of how he exercised his power and dominion using these FBI agents to help frame. And it's, I mean, this is amazing. This is amazing. And again, this is not happenstance. This is not a hypothetical. Well, this took place. Well, these are acts of premeditation. Yes. Again, this is his house. And the best analogy you can give it, the man of his house, whether it's a woman or a man that's head of that house, they're going to guard and protect their house. You heard the Under Armour commercial. I believe the Under Armour commercial says, protect this house. But at what cost do you protect the house of the FBI? Where is the integrity of right and wrong? How is it that former FBI Director Mueller receives a detailed letter from the IRP Solutions Organization? Kendrick, is this correct? A detailed letter explaining uh, to Mueller, look, these are the facts. This is what happened. We need you to look at this, Mr. Mueller. And he sent the letter back. I believe he sent it to the lower court. I be- yeah, I believe it went back to the lower court. Why would you do that? I have no idea. I mean, and, and to me, it, it's it's he needs to. He's trying to wash his hands of something that he know he did wrong. So he he's not going to make any. He's going to try to look like I'm not involved, but it's very obvious to me, at least, that he was uh, and his department, the FBI, was very well involved and knew about uh, our situation and our software. Well, I think it you know goes back to what we just read. The IRP Solutions, the software was on his list. And is no matter what your plea was, he was coming after it. And he unleashed the FBI. And, that, I mean, that's we, – we've sit here. We've talked about this. Samson made it, you know, made, it, made a very good point. This was the, his modus operandi. This was his playbook. This is his script. And he went after the IRP file. And for what reason, as we talked during the break – the motive here, again, based upon the writing of Congressman Gomer, this is a man, according to his observation, that was a modern-day bully within the organization. No one could challenge him. He, would, he said, further in some of this reading, he talks about that agents sought to leave. They didn't want to come to Washington and be behind the desk. They're like, look, man, let me go somewhere else. What type of culture do you create there that the FBI director cannot be talked to, cannot be reasoned with? It makes you wonder. When you, Kendrick, when you talk about the, and Cliff, when you talk about the impact of the software, that they never seen anything like it. I, it makes you wonder and ask the question. How many people within the agency said, man, this is what we need? And he refused to hear them. Well, uh, go ahead, Kendrick. And also, just not only were they saying this is what we need, there were many agents, and this is like uh, easily verifiable, that were like, what you're giving us doesn't work. When he was trying to give him virtual case file, it doesn't work. They didn't hear it. They didn't hear it. He wouldn't hear it. That's right. It's like we're going down this path. I'm going to get this money from Congress. We're going to do it my way. And you make a good point, Kendrick Cliff. I'm coming right to you. When he talked about whether he was spending millions of dollars on software projects 
See, this goes right back to that conversation. This is what Congressman Gohmert went into, whether he was wasting money or not on software product uh, po- uh, packages or whatever. He, my question is, why did they keep into that? That if he was wasting money, whether it be on software uh, type of projects, or why did that come up? There's a reason it came up. The reason it came up, because it's clear, as you said, Kendrick, he would not de- de- deter from that road, that path. So if the software was as good as we know it is, is your ego in the way to that extent where I will not, knowing that people are raving about this software, but I'm committed to this path. So what we have to do is silence the IRP-5. How do we do that? We lock them up. We bring an indictment. No indictment comes from the federal government. I promise you without the FBI being involved. And, and he follows the playbook. Even well, we go. well before the indictment, they leaked to the press that they're going to do a raid on IRP Solutions offices. Well, when we asked uh, the local newspaper, the Gazette, right. that ran the article, well, who told you they were raiding this? Oh, we don't know. Well, that's just going down what uh, uh, Congressman Gomert showed. Right. They, they leaked to the press. They blackball you, make you look like the biggest criminal in the world. I mean, rough-handed you and just, and just walk away and let you just deal with the aftermath. But to save face, if what Go- Congressman Gomert says is true, it all falls in line. To the injustice of the RP five, Cliff. Yeah, I was going to just make the point that when Mueller was uh, vetting these softwares and and when he was spending a hundred million on virtual case file and when he got uh, four hundred something million for the Sentinel project, if you do a search on Jack Israel, CI, former CIO of the FBI, he lays out. The waste, the abuse, the fraud, and everything that went on in the FBI at the time that the Sentinel Project was being made, that everybody knew this project is going to do nothing. This is not going to work. He said that if that system had been implemented, it would have it would have made the FBI less secure than it was without a system. So there was holes all through it. Mueller knew it. He knew it was going that it was going to go nowhere. He knew that the money was going to be uh, wasted. But yet, what does he do? He he uh, puts the raid to the FBI to the uh, to IRP Solutions, and then when he gets informed about it, going back to the letter that was presented to him, saying we have evidence that we committed no fraud. All we did was try to create a product like any other company. You 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 spend money. You may take out loans. You go into debt to basically develop, market, and sell a product. That is the definition of being in business. How is that a crime? And when that was brought to Director Mueller's attention, what does he do but send it back down to the lower uh, FBI office in Denver, Colorado, that already he already knew what was going on there, but it speaks to uh, his culture that he built that we go after you if you committed no crime if we want to put you in prison we use all the power and the uh, and the resources of the FBI to do that whether you committed a crime or not. Well he just said it whether you're guilty or not whether you're guilty or not. You deserve what's coming to you this is absolutely insane 
But it is crystal clear. This is AJC Radio. Robert Mueller unmasked. Hang in there, folks. We're not done yet. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off from school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. Let's just be honest. When we look across the street to the Supreme Court and we see equal justice under law, um, when you have drug laws so severely, disparately enforced against some groups, let's take African Americans, for example, there's no difference between black and white marijuana usage or marijuana sales, in fact. But blacks are about 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for it. Um, African-Americans are more likely to get uh, mandatory minimums, are more likely about 13, to get 13% longer sentences. And it's created these jagged disparities in incarceration. In my state, blacks are about 13, 14% of the population. They make up over 60% of the prison population. And remember, the overwhelming majority of people we arrest in America are nonviolent offenders. Now you've got this, this disparity in the arrest, but that creates disparities that painfully fall all along the system. When you get arrested uh, for possession with intent to sell, do it in inner city, now you're within a school zone. So now you have faced an even higher mandatory minimum. Now you're 19 years old with a felony conviction, possession, intent to sell in a school zone. Forget even all that. You just have a felony conviction for possession. What do you face now? Thousands of collateral consequences that will dog you for the rest of your life. You can't get a Pell Grant. You can't get business licenses. You can't get a job. You're hungry, can't get food stamps. Uh, you need some place to live, you can't even get public housing. And what that does is created within our country concentrated areas where you have massive levels of men being incarcerated. You create a caste system in which people feel like they, there's no way out. And we're not doing anything as a society like we know we could do because there's tons of pilot programs that show if you help people when they are coming back from a nonviolent offense, that their recidivism rates go dramatically down. If you don't help them, what happens is, left with limited options, many people make a decision to go back into that world of, of narcotics sales. Uh, uh, what's more dangerous to society? Someone smoking marijuana in the privacy of their own home or somebody going 30 miles over the speed limit, racing down a road in, in a community? What is more dangerous to society? But yet that teenager who makes a mistake for doing things the last three presidents admitted to doing, now they have a felony conviction because it's more likely they're going to get caught. And for the rest of their life, they're 29, 39, 49, 59, they're still paying for a mistake they made as a teenager. Now, that's not the kind of society 
that I believe in, nor is it fiscally responsible, nor it's undermining their productivity, undermining their ability to take care of their family. This is so wrong that those conversations that I'm having with conservatives as well as uh, Democrats uh, are resonating. And so when you have people like Rand Paul standing up and talking about racial disparities in incarceration, this convergence and understanding uh, of fiscal conservatives, of Christian conservatives, of libertarians, shows me that this is a time of great hope for our country. And so I'm not going to question people's motives. This is one of those issues like the civil rights movement in the 1960s, where it should pull all Americans together to say enough is enough. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, sentenced as an adult at age 16, sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost, isolated, ostracized, misjudged, terrified, and in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we have power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. And tonight we have been dealing with Congressman Louis Gohmert's writing, uh, Robert Mueller unmasked by, uh, by again, Congressman Louis Gohmert, uh, putting some information down tonight. Conversations, uh, very interesting. I'm sure we are not done uh, with this conversation, but uh, Dennis, so far we've, we've uncovered quite a few things. Your thoughts on this, uh, on this program thus far, on the uh, conduct of former FBI Director Mueller? Yeah, it's amazing. It makes you really uh, look at the FBI and its leadership and, and say to yourself, wow, if, if this if this guy could allow this type of stuff to take place in, in the FBI uh, during, you know, while while he's in charge, this he's ruthless. He's almost like a, uh, uh, you can actually say, he, he's, he's like he's out there just doing things on his own. And, and when you when you go after people, and not only go after that person, but you go after their family and you do anything in your might to, to put them in prison or to bring them to nothing, 
he's almost like a gangster. I, I mean, but he has the office. Uh, he uses the FBI as the office to go after people, innocent people, and ruin their lives. And, and that's sure. what he did to the uh, IRP five. I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, it, look, folks. I don't know if you've ever had a loved one locked up. Uh, the greater evil of the criminal justice system is to lock up the innocent. And what's what's very horrible, they used to say, use the term, someone's a shrewd uh, business person. They're just, they'll do anything to um, to reach their agenda or their plan or whatever. When you talk about this case, but not only this case, my heart goes out to the family of Senator Stevens and what he had to endure through this to Kurt Weldon, Congressman Kurt Weldon, his daughter. I mean, there's just no limit when corruption gets involved, when ego and arrogance gets involved in power and money gets involved there are huge numbers of casualties the IRP5 were casualties Ted Stevens was a casualty and unfortunately what wasted time in his life fighting this issue not only and then to only be taken out of this world through a plane crash how much time was lost fighting for what he believed he didn't do anything wrong congressman weldon his daughter what she went through being raided at seven in the morning at her house do you easily forget that i mean when does it matter go ahead samson uh and to your point there i mean it's he he had I believe such an ego that he didn't, he didn't just target, you know, people of opportunity or had something that he won. He actually targeted his own people as well. I mean, they're in the, uh, in the report by Congressman Gomer, he talks about how, you know, whistleblowers or agents that wanted to be whistleblowers, uh, felt like they really had no Liberty to do so. I mean, even with your, we talking about the, the five year up and out, um, policy that he had, had in place, uh, close to 300 people, um, out of 576 that were in that pool back in 2007 chose to actually go up there and go to headquarters. But we have people, I'm talking about, they took a pay cut with a lesser job to stay where they're at. They were tired or they just outright resigned because of this man's leadership style. Like, like we pointed out, he's a bully. He's a, just an outright bully. And, you know, he's one of those ones that he wants to prove a point that he's the man in the government He's the man of the FBI, and he can go through and basically do what he wants to do. And the fact of the matter is that until until we, you know, like I said, we expose him. And, and again, thank God for for Congressman Gomert for for this candid forty um, eight page article that he wrote because it's exposing more and more things and bringing more stuff to light that the general American populace probably didn't know. No, without question, uh, and those are all good points. Um, let's go into the uh, the other part of the young lady that's actually citing uh, some of this reading uh, from Congressman Gomer, Robert Mueller unmasked, 48-page uh, writing 
uh, addressing the conduct of former FBI director and special counsel uh, Robert Mueller. Let's go to the clip. Congressman Kurt Weldon defeated by Mueller's FBI. During my first term in Congress, 2005 to 2006, Congressman Kurt Weldon delivered some powerful and relentless allegations about the FBI having prior knowledge that 9-11 was coming. He alleged loudly and vociferously that there was documentary evidence to show that 9-11 could have been prevented and thousands of lives saved if the FBI had done their job. My recollection is that he may have even accused them of intentionally turning their heads. He held up documents at times while making these claims in speeches on the floor of the House of Representatives. I was surprised that FBI Director Mueller seemed to take those allegations without the major response that appeared to be appropriate, at least to me. It seemed he should either admit the FBI made significant mistakes or refute the allegations. Little did I know Mueller's FBI was preparing a response, but it certainly was not the kind of response that I would have expected if an honorable man had been running that once hallowed institution. And there's Kurt Weldon, which we're going to talk about in a minute. (laughs) You can read two of Congressman Weldon's speeches on the House floor that are linked below. After reading the excerpts I have provided, you may get a window into the mind of the FBI director, or someone under Mueller's control at the FBI. The FBI literally destroyed Congressman Weldon's public service life, which foreclosed his ability to use a national platform to expose what he believed were major problems in the FBI fostered under the Clinton administration. Here is but one such excerpt of a speech wherein he spoke of the failure of the FBI leadership. Then under the direction of the Clinton administration, as it ultimately came within Mueller's control right before 9-11, they failed to even accept from the military any information on the very terrorists who would later go on to commit the atrocities of 9-11, much less act on it. They gleaned this information through development of a surveillance technology in a project called Able Danger. Okay, and I'm going to play this for you. I found the clip. So here it goes. Mr. Speaker. Back in 1999, when I was chair of the Defense Research Subcommittee, the Army was doing cutting-edge work on a new type of technology to allow us to understand and predict emerging transnational terrorist threats. That technology was being done at several locations, but was being led by our Special Forces Command. The work that they were doing was unprecedented. And because of what I saw there, I supported the development of a national capability of a collaborative center that the CIA would just not accept. In fact, on November the 4th of 1999, two years before 9-11, in a meeting in my office with the Deputy Secretary of Defense, the Deputy Director of the CIA, Deputy Director of the FBI, we presented a nine-page proposal to create a national collaborative center. When we finished the brief, the CIA said we didn't need that capability. And so before 9-11, we didn't have it. When President Bush came in after a year of research, he announced the formation of the Terrorism Threat Integration Center, exactly what I had proposed in 99. Today it is known as the NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center. But Mr. Speaker, what troubles me is not the fact that we didn't take those steps. What troubles me is that I now have learned in the last four months 
that one of the tasks that was being done in 1999 and 2000 was a top secret program organized at the request of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, carried out by the general in charge of our Special Forces Command. A very elite unit focusing on information regarding Al-Qaeda. It was a military planning effort to allow us to identify the key cells of Al-Qaeda around the world and to give the military the capability to plan actions against those cells so they could not attack us as they did in 1993 at the Trade Center, at the Kobar Towers, with the USS Cole attack and the African Embassy bombings. What I did not know, Mr. Speaker, up until June of this year was that that secret program called Able Danger actually identified the Brooklyn cell of Al-Qaeda in January and February of 2000, over one year before 9-11 ever happened. In addition, I learned that not only did we identify the Brooklyn cell of Al-Qaeda, but we identified Muhammad Atta as one of the members of that Brooklyn cell, along with three other terrorists who committed the leadership of the 9-11 attack. I've also learned, Mr. Speaker, that in September of 2000, again over one year before 9-11, that Able Danger team attempted on three separate occasions to provide information to the FBI about the Brooklyn cell of Al-Qaeda. And on three separate occasions, they were denied by lawyers in the previous administration to transfer that information. Mr. Speaker, this past Sunday on Meet the Press, Louis Free, FBI director at the time, was interviewed by Tim Russert. The first question to Louis Free was in regard to the FBI's ability to ferret out the terrorists. Louis Free's response, which can be obtained by anyone in this country as a part of the official record, was, well, Tim, we're now finding out that a top secret program of the military called Able Danger actually identified the Brooklyn cell of Al-Qaeda and Muhammad Atta over a year before 9-11. And what Louis Free said, Mr. Speaker, is that that kind of actionable data could have allowed us to prevent the hijackings that occurred on September the 11th. So now we know, Mr. Speaker, that military intelligence officers working in a program authorized by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the general in charge of Special Forces Command, identified Muhammad Atta and three terrorists a year before 9-11, tried to transfer that information to the FBI, were denied, and the FBI director has now said publicly, if he'd have had that information, the FBI could have used it to perhaps prevent the hijackings that struck the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the plane that landed in Pennsylvania, and perhaps saved 3,000 lives, and changed the course of world history. Now, he only gave the link to the PDF that has the congressional report, so you'll have to read through that. Kurt Weldon gave speech after speech, recounting what he saw and what he knew, recounting the FBI and the Clinton administration failures in in information sharing that led to 
Congressman Weldon tried to hold those accountable in the FBI and CIA that he felt mishandled actionable intelligence, which he said could have thwarted the 9-11 terrorists if only top officials at the FBI and others had allowed our rank-and-file law enforcement and military to engage in such a battle. He recounted many examples of how they failed to do so. Understand, I am not a 9-11 denier, nor a big conspiracy advocate. I am simply relaying things for which Congressman Weldon lambasted people at the top of the FBI and other places. In 2006, the Robert Mueller-led FBI took horrendously unjust actions to derail Kurt Weldon's re-election bid just weeks before the vote, actions that were later described as a hit job in this WND article. Each of Weldon's 10 previous re-elections had been by sizable margins. Polls showed that he was up by five to seven points in the fall of 2006. Three weeks prior to the election, however, a national story ran about Weldon based upon anonymous sources. Where have we heard that before? That an investigation was underway against him and his daughter, alleging illegal activities involving his congressional work. Weldon had received no prior notification of any such investigation and was dumbfounded that such a story would run, especially since he regularly briefed the FBI and intelligence agencies on his work. A week after the news story broke, alleging a need to act quickly because of the leak, FBI agents from Washington raided the home of Weldon's daughter at 7 a.m. on a Monday morning. Local TV and print media have all been alerted to the raid in advance. Have we seen this before? Oh, yeah. This is starting to look very familiar. And we're already in position to cover the story. Within hours, Democratic protesters were waving caught red-handed signs outside Weldon's district office in Upper Darby. In the ensuing two weeks, local and national media ran multiple stories implying that Weldon, too, must have been under investigation. Given the coverage, Weldon lost the election. To this day, incredibly, no one in authority has talked to Weldon or his daughter about the raid or the investigation. There was no follow-up, no questions, no grand jury interrogation, nothing. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, wow. I'll tell you right now, make no mistake about it, there's a problem here with former FBI Director Robert Mueller. Uh, when you hear that type of a breakdown, Samson, look, it walks like a duck, quacks. That's the saying I heard coming up, and that's what it is. Uh, it is too familiar and too in step from what we have seen in the history of, of, of Robert Mueller. Uh, and the, I would recommend for anybody to go out and read this article. It's 48 pages. And Robert Mueller unmasked by Congressman Louis Gohmert. This is some serious uh, concerns. And then if you had a culture, you heard her talking about Comey. And mother's relationship. They were one and the same. That's a problem. So 
These are issues that are not optional for discussion. They must be talked about. Your thoughts? I mean, absolutely. Again, going back over the entirety of, of the uh, the 48 pages, I mean, it, it's laid out by the congressman. Start, again, starting back in the 80s, this the, the history of manipulation, bullying, you know, the agenda that Miller always had from the beginning, whether it's, you know, leveraging a, a mob boss that, you know, again, back in the 80s to, you know, leveraging um, – Again, the national security letters here more recently that could blanket, you know, thousands of people and collect whatever, basically whatever data they wanted to on them. And then there's an article in there where they're not allowed to report what data was taken in these things. So even now, as it hits more closer to home with the IRP5 that were, you know, again, unjustly raided with Mueller in his office trying to capture software that they didn't want to pay for. And, and as a result, they imprisoned these men that done absolutely nothing wrong. They imprisoned, you know, their sister, Luana Banks, Clark, and they literally, and they're just trying to run amok and, and nobody at the, um, the national level is putting these people in check. Well, and that's a problem. This is a culture folks. We talk about it all the time on this show. A culture is very difficult to break. This is a culture at the FBI, and it starts from the top down. And it's not to say you don't have good people there. Let me make, let me make that very clear. You can have a culture with decent people, but when the leadership becomes an issue, people follow what the leadership does. You cannot be the director of F- the FBI and not set precedence in your office of how things are done, how they're ran. It's an, it's an automatic conclusion people form. Mr. Mueller does not tolerate being challenged, being talked to about ideas. This is what Congressman Gomer is saying. And as a result of that, there are people in this writing, folks, that took their life committed suicide as a result of Mueller coming after them. This is what's in the writing. Why is that? Someone must be accountable for that. And, and Go ahead. No, no I, you know, it's so true because, I mean, really, if you, if you, all that we've talked about, this man does not care about human life. He doesn't care about the, the outcome of your life. I mean, it, in these two cases, if you look at uh, Kurt Weldon, the the instance says so one year after the after the raid, the local FBI office called Weldon's daughter to have her come and get her property that had been removed from the house the night they or the day that was raided. That was it. The raid ruined the career of Weldon and his daughter. When you look at Stevens, Stevens, they said in the investigation of the report led to I think five a five hundred page report. Documented and outlined how much of of this misconduct that had taken place that ruined this man's career. At the time, he was he was the ranking. Excuse, excuse me, I, I don't want to misspeak, but at the time, his you know he had been there a long time, serving uh, the citizens of Alaska and lost, and then turned around and uh, again died in 2010 in a, in, a, in our 